just got your asses whipped by a bunch of goddamn nerds. Hey, sports fans, welcome to Sports Nerds. Here are your hosts, Dr. Samuel J. and Dr. Brian Schrader. About a weed eater? Yeah, I go by the brand, like Kleenex. Like Kleenex. Weed Whacker is funny because it has Whacker in it. You know what I heard people call it in Michigan? Um, People in the Midwest insist that they don't have weird words for shit, but they're lying. I've heard them call it a, a weed whip. A weed whip, I guess, like a, a, like a weed a... whip. Hmm. Okay, interesting. Which actually, I... I don't think is a bad description inherently, but it's weird, right? Yeah, I mean, technically, that string kind of whips around. That's it, the, that... it whips it. Speaking of whipping, that's the whipping <laughs> of 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 having a fucking weed trimmer, a yard trimmer, is that is filling the line. It's like the amount of time that I've spent in my life refilling a, a weed eater. Yeah. I'll never, I'll never get back, and it makes me sad to even think about. So you just, can you can buy ones where you just buy a cartridge. And thanks, Brian. I know. I've been to Home Depot, Brian. But it's been crazy there. expensive compared to doing it yourself. So yeah. it's really a battle of like, how cheap am I? And you know, you're already at Home Depot and you're already like, I, I always, I'm in, a, I'm in a mood when I go to Home Depot and it's usually about saving money. Yeah. <sighs> Sometimes, unless I'm like buying a cool drill. Or you like know a, your weekend's been screwed if you look at your bank account on Monday and it's like, your receipts are... Home Depot, Home Depot, Home Depot, liquor store, yeah. Home Depot, Home Depot, McDonald's, Home Depot. Oh my God! Like, how was your weekend? I'll just show you that PDF of my of my bank statement. That is so true. Yeah, if you've taken more than two trips to Home Depot <laughs> and at least one trip to the liquor store, you know exactly what you did that weekend. You're in the self checkout for like the fourth time. That day, and the lady's like, yep. "How's it going?" And you're like, "You know how it's going. I've been here six times. <laughs> Leave me alone. No, I don't want a Home Depot credit card." That is so true. Oh my God. That is 100% true. Uh, spot on. Uh, when are we going to, so the, let's, we should talk about our movie podcast. <laughs> because I want to do it. We like, we've, podcasts. No, I mean, we, we've talked about this for years now, but what would be the premise? We just like watch, we watch a movie that came out like five years ago. Well, yeah, the joke was, you, if you have kids, everyone's talking about popular movies and you see them eight months later. I think it's hilarious. And then you walk into the office and you're like, hey, man, did everyone see Green Book? And they're like, yeah, it won an Academy Award nine months ago, you dumbass. I think we should. Which, by the way, I just got from the library. So I'll tell you <laughs> tell you how it is. I was I uh, underwhelmed by Green, by Green Book. Book? Oh. Yeah, yeah. I thought there were better movies. I thought Black, Black Klansman was awesome. Oh, Black Klansman was great. Yeah, I it thought. so good. Adam Driver, man. I don't know where that guy came from. He, he really sucks, as, he sucks as, Kylo, as Kylo Ren. I'm not really moved by emo kylo ren but uh everything else that dude does he came from girls that's he's where he started. Oh, from girls i never did girls yeah yeah well i mean i watched like two episodes but i wasn't gonna go down that path of raunchy jokes brian I didn't you know what respond. you know <laughs> you know what movie i watched yesterday Tell that me. uh got bad reviews and and m night Shyamalan is not a, a popular guy right i think people tend to dislike his movies more than like them I'm familiar so with he him. did he did obviously the sixth sense in the 90s mm-hmm. then his follow-up to that was unbreakable which was samuel jackson science and science was next wasn't science next okay fine the next movie he made that i thought was any good was unbreakable <sighs> and i love mm-hmm. them yeah and then a couple years ago he released a secret sequel which was called split yep yep um and it's uh, james mcavoy i think mm-hmm. it's this guy who has multiple personalities and you don't know it's a it's a sequel until the very end when uh 
when when uh, Samuel Jackson's character Mr. Glass shows up. And then the third part of that came out just this year, and I watched it yesterday. That's called Mr. Glass, and it's oh. such a a cool. I mean, in a world of of Marvel and Endgame and all these, uh, to be honest, movies that I I don't. You say you don't like. You're not into Game of Thrones. I could give a shit about all the Marvel movies. I just uh, same. I just maybe they're it. maybe they're cool. I I can't watch all. Th- I don't even know the order. Like there's 90 of them. These three movies, Un- Unbreakable, Split, and Mr. Glass, are <sighs> such a such a cool. I mean, spread out like 20 years. You, if you if you ever saw Unbreakable, Bruce Willis's kid in that movie is like six or seven. He's mm-hmm. back in it as his like grown up adult son in in this latest version of it it's it's cool and i can't defend m night Shyamalan because he made so many really terrible movies but those three are freaking great so okay so split was good i haven't seen it but i've heard it was good you're not the first one okay i should definitely give that a shot i like i like m M. night Shyamalan movies i I like the sixth sense and i like the i like signs signs just had one shitty part but as a whole Mm. i thought it was a good movie um, yeah, but he did like the Last Airbender, which apparently is one of the worst movies ever. He doesn't doesn't he isn't he featured prominently on How Did This Get Made? I don't know if he's the Last Airbender was on there, but I don't know if anything else has been. What was did you you know who was did you listen to the most recent episode? Uh, that's the the one with Seth Rogen and Charlize Theron. Yeah, dude, she's awesome. She was funny. Oh my god! Like she's... I was Catherine and I were talking. Like, she's fucking hilarious. I was she's like, really how is she funny. gonna how is she gonna be on this show? She's like a big time a-list yes. celebrity on this donkey was... little podcast and she yeah. showed up and just dropped f-bombs with, with the best of them it was hilarious it was yeah that was a good that was a good episode what was it prom, prom night two prom night two prom night uh, two too many people though i thought yeah you kind of have to have that you gotta have people yeah four about for airtime four is about it's worse when you get five comedians you know she's not a comedian <laughs> and you know five comedians just want that. Uh, who's uh who was the podcast. oh i've noticed that burt kreischer has stopped having more than one comedian on his show he just does one-on-ones he used to do like one-on-twos and comedians just want to like one-up each other even if they're yeah. friends they just want to one-up each other and it's just you know, it's the, just too much yeah i agree the episode of how did this get made before the Charlize theron one had toe for grace the guy from that yeah. 70s show when he was in black klansman he was david duke in black black klansman he he it seemed like he was fighting to say things and i was really bummed out because it was a good episode but i wanted to hear him talk more like he had this little riff on the movie big which i thought was really funny that tom hanks in in the movie big he's like a 12 or 13 year old but when he does the body switch and is in the adult version's body he acts like a five-year-old yeah it's weird yeah. right and this is like his uh-huh. critique of, of, of body switch movies mm-hmm. that you you don't <laughs> They're not good at acting the age they're supposed to act, right? Tom Hanks is not point. acting like a 13-year-old kid. He's acting like a six-year-old kid. It's, it was that's, just funny. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. I liked that episode. Very um, smart. What other non-sports-related things do we have to cover since we haven't recorded in a while? <laughs> and it's we been... haven't talked about it. I mean, a sports thing, but it's more. It's bigger than that. We didn't. We haven't talked about Tiger. We, we should have recorded oh, yeah. the next day. We wanted to, but something came up. I don't remember what it was. You know, we're busy. We're fathers and husbands and we have real jobs. This doesn't pay us anything. I actually had people fun. come up to me and they're like, are you going to record another podcast? And I was like, oh shit, I guess we better do that. I know. Congrats to Mike, Mike O, Mike Oliphant, who, uh, who won our master's pool. Mike's my buddy. You've never met Mike, I don't think. Uh, you met Brock, but Mike is, he got a postdoc at Harvard and he left town last thursday so we had day beers brock and i did like on wednesday and it was just the most 
um what's it was just we just broed out there were some yeah. tears and some hugs yeah 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 it was like when you left okay. you know it was like yeah it sucks like and he's not you know he's got to be there for five years but it's like you dude the dude got a postdoc at harvard postdoc? yeah yeah and but what? you don't uh what he does breast cancer research He's, oh, so a, he's like really he's, smart, not fake smart. He's like super he smart. No, he's okay. he's super smart. But like you don't turn down a postdoc at Harvard. Right? No. <laughs> you just go to Harvard. But uh you can go yeah. to I mean hang out in Cambridge and mm -hmm. go, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, when go see some Red Sox games. He's already been to a game. He sent us a picture of this all weekend. He's do is walk down Commonwealth Avenue there and cross the bridge. Funny. Funny though, you know what he complained to Brock and I about yesterday was the the fact that the Cubs game didn't start till 10 30. Eastern oh, Standard Time. <laughs> yes, I, I, oh my God. I feel his pain, man. Nugget, I, the, the, nuggets, the Nuggets there. played Portland last night. I don't know when this is going to record. Game one last night, and I barely yep. made it to halftime, man. Like I gotta, gotta wake up. This is the, <sighs> the worst thing about about the East Coast and uh, East Coast time zone. Rather, I'm not really on the East Coast. Um, I've heard people like brag about that though. That they They'd love on the East Coast. games. Yeah, that they. I guess for some people on the Eastern Time Zone, feel like you don't have to choose between doing something in the evening time and sports and watching sports on TV anyways. Like you can get home at 10 o'clock and okay, now I'm going to turn on a game. Oh, I, guess I, I kind of get right. If you're in California, you know, it, uh, an East coast game might start at three o'clock or something like that. Or the first yeah, game. I get it. Yeah. Playoff game. So, I mean, I guess it, I guess, I guess Denver is the place to be. It's a good, good time for all the games. You know what? Let's, let's jump around our order of, of uh, recording, not to change the subject, but I want to kind of talk about, you know, we wanted to talk about Tiger and we wanted to talk, you know, we never got there, but why don't we talk about Tiger and Addison Russell together and the redemption story? Sure. So sent Brian an article this morning. Uh, it was, I think awful announcing is the one who basically summarized the series of tweets between um, Cubs beat writers, uh, I think famous, not famous, you know, sometimes writers and, and um, lesser known writers and people with a lot of credibility, including somebody from Fangraphs and somebody from baseball prospectus had said that the Cubs were trying to strong arm writers into saying certain things about Addison Russell and his return, um, basically framing things in the very redemption story narrative, as opposed to kind of covering uh, the real story, which is the fact that he beat the shit out of his his, his ex-wife uh, and verbally abused her for several, several years. As a Cubs fan, um, makes me sad, but I think, you know, we went down the uh, the Araldus Chapman tra uh, trail not many years ago and won a World Series. And so the things that you're willing to give up because of your irrational fandom are pretty significant. But what did you, what I mean, when you read this, were you kind of shocked? It seems, I mean, I would believe like there's, these people are credible sources, right? And I think that's a good read on, on, you know, the fact that the Cubs aren't going to go to the Sun-Times writer and try to strong arm him into framing a story a certain way, because we can assume that person already knows how to, how to you know, basically put the story out there. But I want to get your take on this. Yeah. Should, I we mean, talk about the should we talk about the redemption narrative anyway? Do you want to explain that? Sure. I, I, my, 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 to answer the first question first, I guess my instinct to this is it's sometimes we sometimes forget how much power organizations have uh, and that they can wield in terms of who they grant access to and who they don't grant access to. Right. Mm -hmm. like they mm -hmm. give press credentials to people and that allows them to be in the press box or to be in the stadium before the games. So they go walk around and they talk to dudes during BP. They hang out afterwards. There's, you know, basically a space outside the, the, the locker room um, mm -hmm. uh, where, or the clubhouse in baseball, I suppose, where, where the press is allowed to go. And I think sometimes they even 
they even go, you know, in inside the club, the clubhouse itself, right? So if you're a sports reporter, I suspect a lot of your value to to your publication or to your, you know, if it's a website, if it's being very 2019, um, ha- has to do with with whether or not you can have that access or not. And I bet a lot of it is about relationships, right? Do you have good relationships with the organization, and do you have good relationships with the player? So I suspect um, this is a club that's been wielded before, and maybe it's just one of the the first times. We're hearing about it, and I think it's 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 kind of scary um, and and dangerous uh, to to think that you can try and control the narrative. The, the first thing I thought about was uh, politics, right? And and that Trump tried to do this as well in the White House, where he uh, revoked uh, who who was it? Some some dudes um, press credentials, threatened to take away credentials from entire news organizations. Um, in that case, it wasn't a quid pro quo. It wasn't unless you spin the story in a particular way, I'm going to take away your credentials. It was just, I don't like your, your coverage kind of generally, but it, it sort of defeats, it sort of defeats the purpose, right. Of, mm-hmm. of getting access and getting information and sharing that information with people. And it becomes, you know, kind of some, some form of state media, if the government, not just Trump, but if the government can control, um, all the information and the way that stories are framed, we know as communication scholars, right. There are, 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 uh, theories that that suggest that we as uh, a consuming public a public that consumes media are not we don't have total autonomy and total agency when it comes to the things that we think about right a communication theory called agenda setting theory says that we tend to think things are more important if they're given airtime by the media right if it's an issue that's being covered we'll think it's important and if the media chooses not to cover a thing then it doesn't become part of public consciousness, or at least it's less likely to. It's less likely to have um, that public uptake, right? So in this case, you have the Cubs saying, uh, we want this spun as a redemption narrative as opposed to a, you know, should the Cubs even be letting this dude back up because that's good PR for them. You can imagine a scenario where the Cubs say, don't write about this at all, right? We'll let you in as long as you don't write about Madison Russell. Now here, they're not doing that. And maybe they realize they can't avoid the story totally. But going back to that idea of agenda setting, um, I think this actually matches up pretty well with w- the pattern that we see with players who are accused of domestic v- violence or in football, if it's violating the personal conduct policy, that we don't tend to have a big sort of moment of confrontation where we hash this stuff out. Instead, it just sort of goes away and we kind of forget about it, right? Mm-hmm. No, I, 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 should, I should shut up and let you talk, but a good example of this is it seemed like that's what was going to happen with Tyree Kill, right? Mm-hmm. That that mm-hmm. dude had some stuff going on and it was a big deal and football kind of ended and maybe we forgot about it. And then all of a sudden there's a new thing that kind of bubbled back up, right? That's agenda setting theory. That's if we're not talking about it and we're not paying attention to it, we don't have to have a redemption tale. We can just sort of let it seep out of our consciousness and players can kind of come back in like nothing happened. Eraldis Chapman is a good example, right? We never really had, uh, you know, a, 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 a moment of stasis where we we kind of reconciled that. And and, and you're, to your point, you sort of say as fans, we tend to have a, a low bar for what we tolerate from players Another way to think about that is that it, because it's not talked about and because it's not covered, that fans kind of just forget about it. Yeah, I mean, unless it's in the conversation, unless it's it's found it's a place in there, we we do kind of forget about. It. And I don't I don't I don't necessarily think it's our responsibility to have to keep that kind of stuff at the forefront of our mind. Quite honestly, um, I think that uh, let's see, are you still there? can't hear you anymore yeah i'm just hitting mute because my computer okay hit mute. oh gotcha okay um yeah so 
I guess uh, it is it is it is framing. It is it is you know um, agenda setting and all of that, and that's a major issue when it comes to stories like domestic violence. I guess I I don't know. Hmm. I, there was an article that you and I talked about a few months ago. Uh, I believe it was when the Kareem Hunt situation happened, the the crime, and it was somebody I can't remember who who the writer worked for or where she was writing uh, from, but she talked about really the the issues with the domestic violence narrative and like how how limiting it can be when we retell that story over and over again. There's just certain characters that we have to plug in. It, it, with with these people and it really kind of forecloses or makes it really hard for us to have a serious conversation about domestic violence in the sports that you know allow for domestic violence and the role of toxic masculinity in 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 sports and um the fact that toxic mas- masculinity might very much be celebrated um at 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 certain levels of of sport especially at those professional kind of elite levels and you know the fact that not just the teams, but, you know, the media outlets, uh, fans, everybody who's a part of, of that ecosystem doesn't talk about the negative aspects of um, the elite athlete, the elite male athlete in particular um, is, is a major problem. But I think, you know, we don't even have to talk about uh, we're not to limit, limit it to the elite male athlete. You and I have talked about Hope Solo on this uh, conversation before, right? Was it Hope Solo, Brian, who beat yeah. up her, uh, yeah, her her spouse? Her, and so, no, like her nephew or something, or adult oh yeah, nephew. yeah. I mean, it's it's really really kind of uh, messed up um, that we we want our athletes to kind of compete this high level, and we but we don't talk about the. The, the risks that that poses and the ramifications of that. I don't, and not to say that that's where we wanted to go with the story. I think, you know, when I talked about the redemption story and the Tiger thing, um, it's just kind of funny that what Addison Russell did and what Tiger Woods did, I would argue, are two different things. Oh, my God. But, yeah, yeah, but, but, but they're going to, like, how that story, how how the return to the spotlight is told is going to be identical. It's going to be the same um, in that they both, you know, those stories are going to ignore the fact that, you know, what Tiger did versus what Addison Russell did are actually really, really different things or what Tyreek Hill did very, very different things. I mean, that's because I, to me, I don't know, what do you think is, is our, our vocabulary or, um, our view on these things that limited that we can't have a deeper conversation or, I mean, what causes, what, what should we be doing? I suppose as who should we put it on? Is it us as consumers of sports or is it the media? Like who? It's so it's so hard to compare an Addison Russell or a Tyreek Hill or whoever um, a, a Rolvis Chapman to a Tiger Woods. They're not in the same they're not right. in the same universe in terms right. of their popularity, in terms of their position inside of culture. I mean, Tiger Woods. If if you went and pulled a hundred people on the street and said Addison Russell, you know, seventy five percent of them would not know who you're talking about. The same is probably true for a Rolvis Chapman a hundred out of a hundred people know who Tiger Woods is. It's just, it's, it's mm-hmm. a different thing. So his fall from grace, um, it should be noted was not about domestic violence. It was about infidelity. It was, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a, a David Duchovny sort of thing that the dude was, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not that kind of doctor, but some kind of sex addict. It sounded like, I don't know why I'm laughing about it. And it was, it's, it's jacked up what he did and it's, it's unethical. And I think it's, it, it does sort of send the wrong, the wrong message about how, how you should behave. Um, but it's it's a far cry from from doing violence, right? They're, mm-hmm. they're, 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 they're really not the same thing. Um, the thing about Tiger Woods, though, is I think that he's he's held to a, a higher standard just because of, of his ubiquity, just because he's 
so in, in, ingrained with culture. Here's another way to think about it. I sort of talked about before how I think part of the PR strategy on the part of organizations for dealing with players who have Addison Russell type, uh, you know, infractions is the hope that it will be drowned out by the 24 hour news cycle, the 24 hour sports news cycle, that it's a yeah. big story for a couple of days and we'll just forget about it. That's not possible with Tiger Woods, right? It's right. Right. He's, he's bigger than any of that stuff. So it's really difficult to, to sort of draw those comparisons. I was thinking something else, which is uh, when it comes to steroids, uh, for whatever reason, that also, I think was at a, at a higher level that, that, that athletes who, um, were, were accused of, or, or, uh, there was credible evidence that they were using steroids or performance enhancing drugs almost to a T right. Had to stand up and apologize and, and atone and kind mm-hmm. of take questions for their mm-hmm. behavior, but that's not something that we ever do with domestic violence. And it may be because, you know, these people have lawyers that are saying you can't go out and do that because it might get you in legal trouble, but maybe that's the solution. Obviously organizations like the Cubs are not going to offer up Addison Russell to sit down at a press conference and, and answer questions about the, the allegations against him or sort of how he's, um, you know, thought about it and reacted to it and what steps he's taken to kind of atone or whatever. But maybe that's what I'm talking about, right? Maybe that's what we need to get past these sort of things is to say, why don't you stand up and answer questions and 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 talk us through what happened and talk us through not not I don't I don't want to hear an excuse and I don't want to you know hear victim blaming or deflection or anything like that. But for there truly to be a redemption story, don't you need to stand up and be like, yeah, I did this, I I shouldn't have. I was a jerk. I was angry. I'm I'm getting help. Something. Yeah. Shouldn't you do something? But that's not what happened, right? Like no. just reporting that Addison Russell did some some violence. He got suspended. That's it, right? Have we heard from him at all? I don't no. even think there's quotes from him about it. So, um, it how does that make sense? Uh, no, no, it does. It makes total sense. Actually, I, I just I wanted to look to find the article that I was talking about. It's Diana Moskovitz who writes for Deadspin. And the title of it is sports writers are too outraged by Kareem Hunt to bother to learn what domestic violence is. And I think what you're kind of, yeah, what you're pointing out there, right, is the fact that we frame this as domestic violence keeps it in the personal sphere. And so therefore to have a public conversation about it is very, very difficult. And that's kind of her argument too. It's just violence, right? It's just violence. And if we just stop putting that taking if we took that qualifier off and we talked about these things that's just violence her argument is we kind of open up to a larger conversation about what's going on here the systems that allow these th- these things to happen etc 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 and so does that make sense to you like I, her point I, I, and kind of what you're saying I, I think you're right about that argument i think there's okay. definitely a public private sort of thing that's wrong with domestic violence um mm-hmm. A lot of people have, have said, have suggested that you should replace dom- uh, domestic violence with intimate partner violence mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. because it gets rid of the, it's something that happens inside of the privacy of the home and it's about someone's relationship and we shouldn't sort of intervene, which is a very kind of puritanical way of thinking about um, uh, that, 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 that sort of issue. If I remember correctly, the argument she makes is different, which is that Tariq Hill was not in a relationship with the person that we mislabeled what he, was it Tariq Hill? Uh, it, it, oh shit. No, no, Kareem Hunt. That's what she's writing about. This is old. This is from yeah, yeah. I'm pretty positive the, the article that you're referring to, the argument that she makes is that that was the woman that he had just met. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, gotcha. Well, he was not in a relationship with that person. Right. It was not domestic violence. It was just yeah. straight up bad. Straight violence, yeah. yeah. And she says yeah. that that mislabeling makes it look like something else that, 
and, and again, I'm, I'm, I, I haven't read that article since we talked about it months ago. Uh, so if I'm misremembering, please don't get mad at me. But um, my, my recollection is, is her argument is when you say domestic violence, that that rhetorically kind of creates this two people who are in a relationship got in a, in a fight with each other. And we can all understand that because if you've been in a relationship, you've had moments where mm -hmm. you were mad at your significant other. So it's not that big of a deal. And she's saying, that's just not even what this was, that we're mislabeling right. it because it's between a man and a woman when that's not the nature of their relationship. I think uh -huh. that was the argument she made there. By the way, no. the argument you're making is a valid one as well. No, no, I think, okay, you're, thank you for articulating that and, and kind of correcting me because you're right. That is, that is kind of her take. I, I think both of these though, no matter how we frame it, it keeps, because I want to go back to your, your point about steroids right now. So I'm going to connect this together. It does keep it in the personal sphere. And I think it's interesting that you brought up the steroid thing because I was talking to a student the other day who we were talking about the public sphere and, and uh, you know, if any of you are bored out there, find um, Dwight Conquer Good's article on the three spheres of argument. It's actually really, really, it's, I think it's a good read. It's an easy read. And he talks about kind of expectations for the different spheres in which we live our lives and make arguments, right? There's the personal, there's the technical, which would be like specific to certain industries, specific to, to certain professions. And there's a public sphere, which is, you know, things that happen on the open um, in, in places that we consider public, you know, tax funded areas, uh, you know, a college, uh, a city, city hall, you know, these kinds of things. But I think what's interesting about baseball and the steroids thing is that I would make the argument that baseball injected itself in the public sphere with 9-11 and the introduction of patriotism into baseball. That is actually what allowed for the persecution of players who took steroids in the years after 9-11. Sorry, the players who took who took steroids prior to 9-11 and kind of getting caught in all of this stuff, they were kind of forced uh, their their feet were forced to the to the public fire after 9-11 because baseball had injected itself in that conversation. It had gone from a technical or sports specific sphere into a public sphere. I don't think that football has that. I don't think that basketball has that. Baseball is this one entity in our in our nation that is yeah. different than the other sports and I, I i think right hockey serves that purpose in canada right soccer serves that purpose in a lot of countries that were around the world where it's not just a sport it's something public and it's acknowledged as public and it's and we have these moments where it's seen as public and therefore the i guess you know we would call it the burden of proof or we will you know different kinds of expectations but you know the expectations change once you move away from that technical sphere of sport into the public sphere and i think tiger to go back to that point he has he's a public figure he's not a golfer he is a public figure he has become somebody that everybody knows even if you're not into sports and i think you're right baseball players or not specifically baseball players but steroids became that thing that everybody knew about after you know baseball becomes a part of the national conversation it makes that strategic choice to become a part of the national conversation and so therefore those who even before they became a part of the national conversation um did their uh, you know their uh, their uh, indiscretions okay they are held to a different standard does that does that yeah. make sense no it makes okay. total sense there's a part in my dissertation where i talk about this that there's this language when we talk about peds in baseball about the threat to the integrity of the game and you're right it's all about this rhetorical conflation of baseball with patriotism and nationalism and nostalgia and america and apple pie and hot dogs and chevy and all of that nonsense that anything that a player does is a blemish not only on them and their club but sort of on all those other things too right on national pride on mm -hmm. uh, uh, 
politics on on history right right um, right the nfl tries to do this right the the the, the nfl personal conduct policy that roger goodell ushered in uh, it must be 10 15 years ago at this point sort of tried to shift the culture of football to say it's not about whether or not you commit a crime that will give you a suspension but we want to change the culture in the nfl to if you do something that is bad for the shield right that's bad for the game that's that's bad for the image of the nfl then we're going to suspend you and that was an attempt to do what baseball has done right to say it's bigger than you it's bigger than your team it's bigger than baseball it's america right and i think goodell want to do the same thing but i think to your point you're right that that's not something that's that's happened in the nfl that we don't tend to um to again rhetorically associate those things in the same i think that's kind of crazy <laughs> no for sure i think that i guess that not to change the subject too much but the fact that football hasn't reached that level of this kind of intertwined americana makes it like i i guess you know we, we kind of take for granted just how popular baseball was for the last hundred years for the bulk of the last hundred years like that was you know, it's called America's pastime for a reason. And as popular as the NFL is now, it I don't think it's there. I mean, is it there? I don't, I don't know. I don't know. It doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter. It's, it's certainly the most popular sport in the United States. But if you if you looked at sort of today in a vacuum, I think people would think, yeah, football is more important than baseball. But over time, that's yeah. not the case. This Interesting conversation. Point that Tony Kornheiser used to make all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, I've stolen it because I think it's I think it's really cool. Um, and that is, if you, you don't have to go back that long, you go back a hundred years, maybe not even that long. Um, and the most popular sports in the United States were horse racing and boxing, yeah. right, know, and baseball. And you know, two out of those three sports are basically extinct, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure everyone's going to watch the Kentucky Derby this weekend or next weekend or whatever. But beyond that, horse racing, horse racing is like very very tiny. Um, yeah. Whereas baseball it's easy to say, oh, it's not as popular as football. It's, you know, barely as popular as the, as the NBA, maybe not even quite as popular as the NBA. But if you zoom out, right, the historical trend of baseball is that it's been pretty consistently popular in the United States, right? So a snapshot that says over the last 10 years, football is way more popular than baseball does not really tell the entire, entire story. I, we're going to move on to the next story, but it's funny. I was talking, I can't remember I was talking with Brock the other day um, about how baseball just refuses to change its extra innings rule rules. And like, I just want baseball to get better. I just want to get better. I don't want it to get like smarter and more attractive to a newer audience. And we've talked about this a thousand times, but that was just another, that was just another thing that popped up this week. Cause the Cubs had that 15 inning, you know, game. And there's no reason that a team should, should have its bullpen wasted in April for a 15 so, inning game. It's just so the rule change you're talking about is let pitchers pitch a game or something. No, no, no. Like limit it to 12 innings and then ah, it's just no. a tie. I love Dude. it. I love it. They're like into the second baseball game. Yeah, but that's fun in September. I have to look this up. I watched the Rockies into like 21 innings one time. Yeah, yeah. Seven or eight hours, and it was awesome. It was it was like one of the best games I've ever seen. Dude, it was probably here. We were probably at the – we didn't know each other then. But I remember Catherine right. and I went the summer we moved here. It was the longest game in Coors Field history. Like the longest Did you stay for it? Yeah, stay for it all. It was like – it was a rain delay. Like there was like a couple of rain delays. Maybe not that year. Maybe a different game. No, but it was like 18 innings. Um, I want to talk. I know you got to run, and I want to be respectful of your time, but I really thought that article that you sent me uh, from the New York Times was awesome. And 
folks, I, I think we, I posted it on Twitter. And if I remember, I'll post it on our Facebook page, but it was just, it's a really, really good read about how Norway has taken the initiative to basically give youth sports, uh, give, give everybody access to youth sports and actually kind of, you know, the, I wouldn't say that, that their society is scaffolded on sport, but the access to sport is definitely an expectation that a kid has. And I think that's just awesome, right? Like, I'm, and they kind of, you know, tie that to the success that Norway had at the last Winter Olympics and actually the success they've had in some weird sports, like, like, uh, what was it, sand volleyball? Like, they're the best yeah. sand volleyball player in the world, but uh, who was, who grew up like in the middle of nowhere in Norway. But I really, really enjoyed that read. So thanks for sharing it. Did you want to kind of take some quick hits on that? Because it was, it was wonderful and it just went, it kind of proved to me how fucked up, um, some of our uh for you know pay for play sports are uh yeah. sports are in this country it, it basically starts with this premise of how how is it possible that a, a country is as small as norway is as competitive on the international scene um of of sports as it is uh one of the examples is they got like twice as many medals in the winter olympics as the united states even though we're you know hundreds of thousands of times bigger have, have more population um and especially given that their there's their youth sports programs are heavily regulated to kind of keep them as uh i was gonna say uncompetitive but that's not the right word but as non-travel centric non-hyper competitive as as american sports so basically norway they've just got a bunch of rules that um you can't travel uh can't be on travel teams until a certain age that you um uh, can't have national championships until a certain age. It's basically rules that would bar things like AAU basketball in the United States and travel baseball teams for eight-year-olds and stuff like that. And um, this article in the New York Times basically says that um, uh, this is increased participation. That you have more kids participating in sports. They've got 93% of kids growing up in Norway play um, organized sports. And it sort of uh, structurally keeps parents from kind of going all in on a sport early on in the hopes that their their kid might have a you know a pro career or a college career or or something like that um it, it's sort of the opposite of the way that we think about sports in the united states and the the results seem to suggest that it's not bad for those for those kids that it's probably better for those kids so i don't know this was a, str a struggle for me to read because it's a it's a fight i've had kind of internally for a long time with my kids is you know how much is too much and, and, and how should I encourage them without pushing too hard? Um, how can I give them opportunities without, um, you know, kind of buying into this, you got to get your kids foot in the door when they're six or seven for them to have a chance to play at a, you know, a, a elite or semi elite level. And it's, it, 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 it kind of reinforces the, what I think is the, the good angel on my shoulder of being like, let, let your kids do a bunch of different things. Um, and and you don't invest too much time or money um, into into those sports, and it's not going to hurt them um, in the end. The the flip side of that is that this article seems to argue that it's a cultural thing in Norway. That there's it's a small enough country that there's kind of a cultural consensus that this is the way that we should think about sports, and it's probably something that we'll never ever achieve in the United States. You're not going to get you know all however sixty million of us or whatever to get on board with this with this version of sports if there's a perceived benefit to having your kid on a, a travel baseball team when they're eight and spending thousands of dollars um, to, to give them, because th those, those kids will, if you have that, have an advantage over the kids who pick up baseball in, in, in high school, right? The only way for the system to work is for uh, the United States as a whole, culturally, to sort of step back and say, at what age and level of development should we start 
cultivating um, uh, expertise and and advanced competitive drive in in our kids. And I would say the answer to that question now is, you know, it starts as low as when they're six or seven or eight, and it should be when they're 12, 13, 14. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I wonder if our, if our upbringing was different in terms of our access to sports. Like, I think the things that you, you have, a can, you are able to see this story and think about maybe what things were like when you were a kid and, you know, travel soccer or what have you. For me, I, I always had access to whatever sports I wanted to play. Yes, there was like Babe Ruth baseball and, you know, that, that costs money. But, and even now in Iowa, I know having talked, talked to buddies there, like, uh, you know, Ben Kielberg, who's, who, who he was telling me the amount of money he's spending this summer for his kids travel baseball team is just insane. But I felt like even like 15, 20 years ago for me, that was different. When you were a kid, was it, was it like, did you play on travel teams? Was it, was this a big city thing versus a small city thing or a rural thing? I, I, I suspect it's, we, we may, we may be a little old for the, the I think the travel culture is a little bit younger than us. Maybe yeah. I'm wrong about yeah. That. No, but it's probably the, the, the big travel culture, or at least it's, I, I, I would, and I don't have any data on this, but I suspect participation in that, those big travel teams has, has gone up dramatically since we were kids, but no, I played, I played, you know, local soccer. I played, I played sports. I played sports through my school when I was, um, 11 or 12, I played on a, a, a competitive team, but we didn't travel out of the state. I mean, we played some, we played tournaments in Colorado, but we didn't go, we didn't, we weren't, we weren't, I, I wouldn't consider what I did a, a travel team. And it was very, very late. Right. Which is, which is different than, you know, it's possible now you could put your kid on a, a travel soccer team or a travel baseball team, or, you know, like in my kid's case, a travel swim team where at eight, nine, 10, if you want to, you can take them to Chicago and you could take them to Indianapolis and you could take them to, you know, Cincinnati and all these places. And, and it seems, you know, it's crazy. How do we fix this? Like, how, how do we get closer to, I don't want to say Norway, or I'm not calling us, I'm not saying let's make this push towards <laughs> socialism, but like, how do we fix? Well, I'm done with that too. <laughs> I know, I know. But like this, this access thing is a real thing, right? It's a real it, thing, it, dude. It's not really fair it, either. It does point to a real problem, which is if, if, you, if you are born into a privileged situation, are you, does, does that privilege afford you opportunities that other folks don't get? Meaning yeah. are the, are the, are, listen, the, the, the sort of underlying premise of this article is that the way that we do sports, aside from being unfair, aside from being costly, aside from being potentially damaging to our kids, doesn't do a good job tracking kids into sports where they have high aptitude because we do it too early. Yeah. Like fundamentally, this is making the argument that at eight or nine or 10, you have no idea if a kid's going to be a great basketball player or a great swimmer or a great whatever. Like you yeah. find that out, we find that out later. The problem is there's too much noise in the situation where we've got an eight-year-old A who's been playing travel baseball since they were seven, right? And then we've got another kid who's eight years old who played a variety of sports. And once they get to high school, has only played a couple years of baseball, a couple, you know, local little league or something. Maybe mm-hmm. the kid who played in all those travel teams looks better at 13, but really is not better, right? They only look that way because of all that travel baseball experience that if they right. were on a level playing field or, you know, if we let them develop from that point forward, the kid who doesn't have all that travel stuff may turn out to be the better player, but doesn't go out for the team because they don't have that travel experience or doesn't make yeah. the team in the first place because they don't have all that travel experience, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's, 
does the system allow us to identify the most skilled players? And if, if, if that's the case, then why did we get, you know, why did we win half as many medals as, as, as Norway in the, in the winter Olympics? Right. I guess well, maybe in our lady winter sports, but. Hey, but but dude, seriously, like if you like think about what winter sports are here in Colorado in Utah versus what they are on the East Coast, right? Like totally different culture. The the access to winter sports when you get out to Vermont is very open, you know, as opposed to here where it's very, very elite. It's very, very expensive. And I would make the argument that if, 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 you know, access to skiing and snowboarding and all that were a little bit cheaper, and it's not the equipment necessarily. It's the, you know, having to spend $130 for a lift ticket, we would be as competitive as, as these other countries. There's a re- no reason we shouldn't be. I mean, yeah. is that clear to you? Like it's, it, it, that is, that is not even like, that's a split of cultures within the United States. It's not even uh, about different countries. Like we have a different understanding of, of what skiing is here than they do in, in, you know, places where they can ski on the East coast. What's it like in Michigan, actually? I mean, there, I know that is it more, it's just more cross country skiing. So it's different. No, there's a lot of downhill skiing. It's just the the hills are not very big. Um, it's 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 weird. It's still expensive, but um, you don't have to drive, you know, an hour hour and a half like you do from Denver to get up to skiing. No, I think the skiing example is interesting. But here's a better one, which is take a sport that shouldn't cost that much, mm-hmm. right? My kids are in t ball and, and softball this year, and man, it's the cleats and the bat and the bag and the helmet and the glove and all that stuff. It's, it's, it's a little bit pricey compared to soccer where it's like, I'll buy you a pair, a pair of cleats. And, and that's really all you need. Go find a, a square patch of grass, rectangular patch of grass. And that's, that's all you need to play, but it can artificially become really expensive. If you've got some kids that are playing soccer at the YMCA or, you know, out here we play in the Southern Lakes park and recreation district soccer leagues versus if you're playing on a travel team, right? Does that make sense that we can, artificially make things more expensive that they that they ought to be and not have equal access for everyone right yeah and i think again coming back to this article the point is were you to create um you know procedurals or procedures or structures or rules that sort of said how can we make all these sports as accessible to everyone as possible uh, are we likely to to yield um a, a better result not just in terms of all the different people who get to to participate at the same level but ultimately are we cultivating talent in, in, a, in a better yeah. way? And again, this is personal for me because, you know, I have my, my kid, my kid swims on a, a, a competitive swim team. She doesn't travel out of state, but she has options. She could, I could be mm-hmm. sending her to out of state, state stuff. Um, this, the same, the same thing that I hate when my kid's rec soccer team gets whooped up on by a travel team, which happened just last year. I sort of mm-hmm. like when my kid's swim team shows up, they're going to crush a lot of these other swim teams just because, they're so huge and they have, you know, really uh, high level coaching. They've had Olympians swim for them and that sort of thing. And so she swam all winter and they have a spring mini season. And I was like, I had to sit down and talk with her. I was like, do you want to swim some more? Because summer season is going to start here in a few weeks. And ultimately we decided together, but I think I was a, a pretty big, uh, I was pushing her on this a little bit to be like, take a break. Let's go play yeah. softball. I mean, let's do something else. Maybe you shouldn't at eight years old be swimming 10 months out of the year. Yeah. But but in my yeah. in my mind, there's a little there's a little bit of me that's like, well, you know, if, if she swims ten months out of the year, she's going to be a really good a really good high school swimmer, right? Or have the potential yeah. to be a really good high school swimmer. But this is the point too, which is, is she good because she's good at swimming, or just because she's had ten years of experience before someone yeah. who's a better natural swimmer, right? Like the system rewards those who can afford it and invest the time, not. It's, the system is not designed to be 
meritocratous. It's not designed yeah. to figure out who is actually the best. And this system works out great for people who who have the have the resources, but it probably it probably means that we've got people that would be fantastic athletes that end up not getting tracked through the system properly and end up, you know, maybe not playing sports at all. Yeah, I think I mean, this is an easy social construction to kind of point to as an example, or it's a good example of a social construction we can point to. And because I think we can say, just think about how things were when you were a kid. And I think within the last 20, 25 years, things have changed so much. And I know even like when our parents were children, that even changed more. Like it was, you know, free access. I don't even think I had to pay for T-ball when I was a kid, but you played it all summer. It was just available. It was just there. And like, there's just no, I don't know. There's, there's a major, I don't know. I, you and I, we value sport so much and we know what sport can do for um for people in a, in a very positive way and not giving this access to it is just to me such such a problem not only are you missing out on talent and people who could be really really good in different sports but i think those people miss out on the opportunity to be part of a team and all that and i don't mean to like blow smoke up anybody's ass but there is value to like being part of a team and having to lose together and having to win together and all of that. And I think if you don't have that, um, you know, if you're not in a, in a, in a town or in a city where you can have that access relatively cheaply or your parents simply can't afford it and they don't have the time and all of that, that's like a major problem. That's a huge problem. It's here's, just, uh, yeah, go ahead. Here's, here's a good metaphor for thinking about this because the exact same problem exists inside of education. Right. And this sort of says, what if a kid who's a genius is born in, uh, you know, to, to, to parents who, who don't make a bunch of money or, um, you know, are, are, are borderline impoverished or, or maybe they're just straight up impoverished. And therefore they live in a place where the schools are real shitty. And, you know, they go to a school where they're being taught not to their level, but rather to the level of, you know, kind of the, the again, the, the circumstances, there's, there's shitty teachers, there's not a lot of uh, property taxes that are funding the schools, there's not a lot of programs, right? That, that person doesn't end up you know, pulling themselves up and, and, and going to Harvard or something like that does not mean that that person wasn't smart enough to do those things. It, it meant that the sort of structures around how education works put a cap on that, right? Yeah. The, the yeah. thought experiment is, you know, it's, it, it's really easy to sort of say the smartest people graduate from Harvard because Harvard has the smartest students or whatever, but that doesn't disprove the counterfactual that says, couldn't there theoretically be smarter kids who because of uh, a lack of, of privilege or advantage, never had an opportunity to get on a path that would have led them there, who would have yeah. otherwise been smarter than the kids who do graduate from there. Like, I'm not saying that's true for sure, but it, it makes sense in the counterfactual. The, the, the idea, and it's the same thing, it, it's sort of what's embodied in this program in Norway is to say, a better model is not to create sort of uh, easier pathways for people who have privilege, but rather, to have the system be as as level at the beginning as possible and sort of letting people um, kind of rise up through the ranks more organically. Right? Um, it's I, all, we're constantly just putting our fingers on the scale in terms of determining who the best athletes are or, you know, who who the the, the most promising, um, you know, academics are or, 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 you know, the smartest kids are, the best programmers are the most, what, you know, whatever, the most creative types. What, what, I don't want to put education in a tiny box but i think you get what i mean no i mean it's because of the way that the school system is set up in the united states i think they are connected you know sport and education are connected and i mean it's it's it's, it was evident here actually last week in colorado um 
because what is the, I can't remember think of the athletic union in Colorado, the acronym is, but they just passed uh, some, a, a raise increase, a raise for, for referees, uh, for sports, for high school referees. And um, Colorado still remains the 48th lowest, uh, Colorado referees, the 30, the 48th, I'm sorry, lowest paid referees in the nation. And that goes hand right. in hand with the fact that, yeah, with, for high school, that goes hand in hand with, Col- with Colorado being one of the worst states in the country for education. And so there's not going to be any spending on these things that like would actually provide an environment where sports are valued. Does that make sense? I don't know. I didn't articulate that very clear, but clearly if you're not paying your referees, right. To like, to, you're not paying people to volunteer that. Well, they're obviously not volunteer their time. Right. But you're not paying for good referees for a high school soccer match or baseball game. Then, you know, why would you spend extra money for a better principal or a teacher and all of this? And so that's like, I don't, I I just wish that these kind of things would be more at the forefront of, 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 you know, what we want. Uh, and what we value than than we actually seem to be showing, because I think there's so much rhetoric about the value of sport and the value of education, especially in our state, right? I mean, I know you're in Michigan now, but you grew up here. Um, and it's, I, I mean, I know it's different now where you live too. The value of education in the Midwest is simply just different, but there's just so much, so much bullshit that is thrown at us um, in Colorado. And it's, it's, it would be nice to, to actually see people put money um, towards these things that, that don't just, it's not about building professional athletes, it's about building character and just good people. And I think sport is one of those ways that, that do it. And Norway, you know, has kind of figured that out. But alas, any, any closing comments? I, I, I feel like I'm going to make it worse, not better. But okay. the, the best example I can think of of what I'm trying to illustrate is like Matt Damon in Goodwill Hunting. Right? <clears throat> yeah. Like a savant genius who because of the situations in which he was born, right, is not on a pathway that ever is going to lead, lead to Harvard, but for a, a Hollywood script where he's discovered as a janitor at MIT or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. You got mm-hmm. get my point? That, I get your that point. Can, can play out over and over and over again, right? It's it's Matt Damon versus the, the ponytail dude from Oz, right, when they have a fight in the bar about history or whatever. It's that over and over again, right? It's really easy to think that because that dude is at Harvard, He's the best of the best. Yeah. It, it that eliminates the possibility that there's people who are overlooked by your system. That's the point of this article: is if what you really, really want is the best possible outcome for everybody, then the mm-hmm. system is jacked. If all you're concerned about is the best possible outcome for your yeah. kids, then a system yeah. of privilege tends to work out really, really well. Let me. I, I'm the one who said I had to go, but here, here's another metaphor that might be helpful for thinking about this. There was a great discussion on NPR yesterday about anti-vaxxers and there was this woman who kind of came on and said we have to be careful about using anti-vaxxer language because there are some people who um, wouldn't consider themselves anti-vaccines but are sort of pro liberty and choice and feel like they should be able to make sort of individual decisions that best meet their kids needs blah 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 blah. the argument was not super persuasive um, to, to me to be honest but she she did say this thing later on which is the the argument about vaccines is interesting um, because it sort of begs the question of who are you benefiting benefiting when you get a vaccine, right? For for the majority of healthcare decisions that you make for you or for your kids, the immediate benefit is for you or for your kids, right? Does that make sense? But the mm-hmm. logic of vaccinations is actually you should get vaccines not because they'll protect you, they will, 
but because they'll protect the people who can't get vaccinated. right right i mean that was the let that was the initial kind of public argument was, was that so sorry go yeah. ahead but her argument is if you view healthcare decisions through the lens of not the common good but rather making individual decisions that are best for your kids then you don't have to be a person who thinks that vaccines yeah. have mercury or are going to give your kids autism or any of those things you might just say the ability to make an individual choice that best needs meets the needs of my kids would foreclose the 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 persuasiveness you would never see the argument that you should get your kid vaccines because it's good for some old lady who might get the flu and die you'll never right. find that persuasive because that's not the lens or criteria through which yeah, you're making the decision this same logic applies to decisions about sports right if mm -hmm. it's hard to say to people you shouldn't put your kids in aau basketball or a travel baseball team because if you do, if you don't right and we all agree to let our kids play ymca baseball at least until they're 12 or 13 at the end of the day more kids will play sports there will be lower entry barrier it'll be cheaper and at the end of the day we'll get better athletes right mm -hmm. our pro athletes will be better if you say that to someone and they're like yeah but that probably means that my kid loses an advantage they would otherwise have it's just like saying to the liberty person you should get your kid a vaccine because it's good for an old lady or for some other kid who can't get a vaccine to be like yeah fine but i don't give a fuck about that right <laughs> my decision is only about my kid so it's it there's a there's a broader logic problem that yeah. explains the culture of sporting that is yeah it's really complex actually i don't know if that makes sense i wonder when it switched i mean like i i feel like i don't know man um if you think about just if we can use Hollywood film as our test case or our examples, our evidence that at one time sports played a larger role in civic virtue, right? The development of it and the practice of it and all of this. I mean, don't we see that in even something like Bad News Bears? I know that's crazy, right? But like that, that movie works because we assume that baseball is available to every neighborhood and every neighborhood has a weird drunk coach and a bunch of kids who can't play and all of that. That's not a trap. Butter, Butterman? Yes. But that's Butterman. like, that. yes, yes, yes. 100%. You know, I mean, but we're not, I don't, th I don't see, we don't see it anymore. Right. This, the Sandlot, the Sandlot work, I guess Sandlot isn't organized baseball either. Um, I'm trying to think of just like, just Hoosiers. Is Hoosiers, does it work now? You know what I mean? Or is it, or is, or it was blue chips more the present moment that, or, uh, you know, he got game, these kinds of things. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's just that for some reason, I don't know what, if you want to call it neoliberalism or the individualization of, of sport, buttermaker of sport, it's, it's no longer there. Right. It's, yeah. it's absolutely 100% no longer there. It's, 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 I don't think any sport wrestling in Iowa, I guess is a little bit different. I think wrestling is accessible. Um, bring, I, you, yeah, go ahead. To bring this back to your point though, about baseball being this, like, it's bigger than it's bigger than itself right that, that yeah. baseball, like that baseball is greater than the sum of its parts because of history and tradition and nostalgia and nationalism and patriotism and patriotism and all that all that sort of stuff if all that's actually true and not just a marketing scheme right to sell tickets mm -hmm. if, if all that stuff really really true then shouldn't we be making decisions about our kids participation in baseball in terms of what's best for the game not what's best for my kid yeah yeah. Like I those, mean, two, those two things are inconsistent with one another. They are, dude. They are. I mean, money has just, I, I don't, I think that's it, right? It's, 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 it's big companies. I think Nike's to blame. I think Adidas is to blame. I think that um, there are for profit organizations that have milked our love of sport 
in ways that and i and i know you'll agree with this doesn't fucking happen around the world i mean it happens yeah. some places but not like dude soccer in europe totally different animal and there's a lot of money in soccer but it is it, if you're good you're going to get access to it and you're going to play right you know what I mean? and it's and you, you play it at the park across the street it's just uh, i don't know it's frustrating but uh i i don't let you go because i know you got a grade uh wonderful show today buddy that was good that was really good um i guess we should wait longer to do our shows from now on <laughs> um we have let's see when is the pga championship oh they moved it right yeah they is moved the it they it up or is this what did they do it last year too first April. year pga That's championship it is come on internet uh may 16th so we will get that yeah we'll we'll be getting our our pool up and running again so everybody who is in the master's pool you'll obviously get an email um beginning of that week so we'll plan on like may 12th i guess i'll send it out and then we'll do the same thing where it's you know you send brian and i some cash and we will we'll have some fun uh those of you who if you're still listening and you haven't paid please send us the money we need to pay Marcus Porosky for winning our match Madness pool and Michael LaFont for winning the Masters pool. Everybody else has been paid out. Second and third have been paid out across. But I'll put a, a check in the mail for Marcus today. So that, that's a message for you. If you play in this, you should take second or third because you, you'll get paid. You get your money first. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, all right, buddy. Well, good luck. Uh, great hard or don't. And yeah. have a fantastic uh, two, is it Tuesday. Have a good Tuesday. It's Tuesday. All right. We'll see you later, buddy.